0: You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Chris Cleave. This program originally aired in 2012.
1: Thank you so much. Well, thank you. This is amazing to be here. What a wonderful evening. Um, Thank you all so much for coming out. Um, I've only spent one day now in New Hampshire, uh, and having spent quite a lot of time in the old Hampshire, uh, I'm really pleased to announce that this is a major upgrade. (laughs) Well done. In fact, this is by far the most beautiful venue that I've been to on this tour. What a historic theatre. I'm really grateful to be here. It's really exciting and thank you all for coming. Um, I've spent quite a lot of time actually in the old England. Uh, I would have to say that the whole New England thing is in many ways a major improvement. <laughs> it's incredible. I've done really enjoyable events on this tour um, in uh, well, big cities like Boston, all the way through to tiny communities on the coast of New England. Um, I've been lucky enough to spend a lot of time in New England. Um, I, uh, when I was a writer in residence at University of Rhode Island, I, I came around here a lot as well, and I taught some students there. This was really in my rookie year as a novelist, and I didn't know my way around students very well and their habits, and I would have uh, a 9 a.m. course. <laughs> the University of Rhode Island. They were terrific kids. I really enjoyed teaching them. And, uh, but they would come to their 9 o'clock course really tired. <laughs> and I was like, guys, what is it? You know, I'd assumed that they'd been out partying, and by about the third or fourth day, I plucked up the courage to confront them with this and say, look, you know, you've really got to bring your A-game to writing class. It turned out that what they'd been doing, they'd been out since 4 in the morning surfing. I was so proud of them! (laughs) There was a major frontal depression. Nothing to do with me. A a meteorological phenomenon in New England. And uh, the surf was up. So they'd got up at four in the morning and gone surfing and still shown up for classes. And they were a little bit tired. God bless them. (laughs) Amazing kids. They build them better in New England. Um, I'd like to thank another uh, terrific Product of New England as well, who's here joining us. I'm very honoured uh, that my editor, Sarah Knight, uh, is here tonight. And I'd just like to acknowledge what a huge debt I owe to Sarah and how important um, she's been um, in this new book, Gold. So um, thank you very much for coming, Sarah. <clears throat> I, I, I can't actually see you. <laughs> I can't see anything with these lights, but I know you're here. Um, I'd also like to thank her husband, Judd. Uh, a terrific man, um, who's um, honouring us with his presence as well. Um, he's from New Orleans. How are you doing? This is, this is why I mention it, because you're from a new place too. I, I've spent quite a lot of time in the old Orleans as well, which they call Orléans. And I have to say that the new New Orleans is a major upgrade too. So every time I come to America, Every time I have the great privilege of traveling from coast to coast and back again um, between one reading community and another and realizing what a strong and dynamic and adventurous and open and exciting reading community there is in America. I'm reminded by what an amazing place this is. I think you should do more of this new stuff every time I come back. I'm looking forward to version three. I don't know what to expect next time I come back. Hopefully, unicorns and <laughs> more, more adventure. It's been terrific, and thank you. I'd like to talk to you about my new novel, Gold. Something that I do in all of my books is that I start with a question. And I hope that some of you who've read my previous work will, will see that there's a question at the heart of it. In Little B, for example, the question is... How far should we step outside our comfort zone in order to help someone else into it? It's the age-old question of charity. And what I do in my books is I try to make a timeless question timely. I try to make it interesting again. Um, And this is, I think, what I've tried to do in gold. I don't go looking for big ethical questions that I think I ought to answer. I don't have a list of ethical conundrums and go sticking a pin into them. Uh, They're questions that come up and grab me. Uh, The reason I started writing gold is because of something that happened in my life when I was about to go on a book tour. Three years ago, um, my then six-year-old saw me packing to go for my tour. So I was packing my suitcase and he knew what was going on because he'd seen this all before. And he looked at me putting the clothes in and he said, oh... You're off, are you? So I said, yeah, you know, um, uh, it's my thing, a thing I do, and yeah, I've got to go, and I'm sorry. And uh, he folded his little arms and said, oh, yeah, well, don't worry about us. We'll be fine. (laughs) No, He had a neat little line in passive aggression going at six. I don't know where he got it from. And, and then he was really upset, actually. He was upset after that. And he came uh, up to me, grabbed hold of my leg and wouldn't let go. And in order to get um, into the taxi to get to the airport, I had to prise his little fingers off my leg. And he was saying, Daddy, don't go. We like it more when you're here. Uh, it's not because I'm an exemplary parent. It's because six-year-old kids like it more when they have a parent there. Uh, it's just natural. And and this got me thinking, Well, on the one hand, this is something that I feel completely compelled to do. as my calling. I want to be a writer and that means that I go on tour. On the other hand, the person that I'm doing it for um, has got his arms around my leg trying to stop me going. Right? So this is really what gold is about. It's about that moment amplified up. What comes first in your life? Your, your calling, your vocation or the people you love? On paper, that's a very easy question. If I were to ask anyone in this room, I mean, you, you seem like a very nice bunch of people. <laughs> if, I, if I were to ask you, what comes first in your life? Ambition or love? I'm sure most of us would say, oh, love. Definitely, every time. And yet, when the question is made concrete, for example, someone says to you, the, this company has a really important project. Um, We've chosen you for it, but you're going to have to work through the next four weekends. Actually, suddenly, that's a different question. You know, you're going to spend the time at work instead of at home. What comes first, ambition or love? I don't know. And so to answer the question, this is what I do in my fiction, right? I go out to the most extreme people I can. People who are living right at the edge of the human experience. So with little b, um, it was people who are refugees. in the case of gold, I've gone out to find the most ambitious people I could possibly find. Um, and those are Olympic level athletes. Uh, I don't know about you, but it's certainly true for most people in the world, that in order for you to succeed, it's not necessary for everybody else in the world to fail. <laughs> not true of Olympians. Right? They have to shatter everybody else's dreams in order to achieve their own. What, what a beautiful and dark vocation that really is. I've begun to understand the, the psychological depth of these characters. And I needed to research it. I, I, I started talking to a lot of athletes and asking them questions like, why? why is this rivalry so important to you? Why do you need to win at all costs? What's so important to you that you put it before um, in many cases, friends and family and career, why do you need to win so much? What does it feel like to win? And they would say to me, oh, well, you know, it's indescribable. So I was like, well, help me out here. <laughs> and they said, no, it's really hard to experience. You have to, you have to do it yourself and see what it feels like. So I thought, well, okay, I'll do that. Um, I should give you some background. Um, I had a a P.E. teacher at school who wrote the following on my school report. Uh, Christopher tries very hard. (laughs) But we find it is safer to pass him a book than the ball. (laughs) That was the background I was coming from in sport. So I I had a long way to go. I trained and trained and trained on a bike because I wanted to understand how to write these race scenes. There are scenes in this book where my two protagonists, they're called Zoe and Kate, and they have very different attitudes to life. Zoe puts her ambition above everything. She's cut everybody out of her life who doesn't make her quicker. Kate has chosen a completely opposite course. She has a husband she loves, she has a child she adores. She has people in her life who care whether she wins gold or not. But at the same time, these people have a habit, as people do, you share your life with people and it kind of slows you down in a beautiful way, but it kind of slows you down. They've chosen really different approaches. They race each other. We get to see who's quickest. We get to see who wins. And I needed to write those scenes. I needed to know how it felt, so I had to race. So I started training. And I trained for about a month really hard on the bike, 20 hours a week, during which I felt pain, <laughs> sadness. <laughs> after, after about six weeks I experienced the first positive sign. I, I looked down at my legs in the shower and I realized that they weren't my legs anymore. I had an impostor's legs with muscles and everything. I found this hugely encouraging. And, And I went out and I did a second month of really hard training and by the end of three months, I felt awful. But I was able to beat my training partners to the tops of some really big hills. And I got a savage joy out of that. (laughs) Who knew that that was hiding? You know, In everyone's heart, I think, there's this thing that loves getting to the top of a hill first on a bike. It's a childish thing, it's brilliant. I'd started calling these people my training partners. I used to call them my friends. <laughs> I I started shouting motivational slogans at myself when I went out for bike rides. I'm a novelist. <laughs> it's not even important that I should do this. And I got obsessed with it. and. After about five months of training, I was getting quite quick, and I went out and I decided to test myself against a friend of mine. Um, I decided to race, and if I were to win, then I would decide right. I now know enough about what it feels like to win to write some proper race scenes. So, she's a world champion cyclist, is the only problem. Um, She, in the Masters category, won Uh, the world championships of track cycling five years ago. She has the world champion's rainbow jersey, to prove it. Um, The idea was that I would gate-crash her training ride, and we did. We warmed up, and then we went for a ride, and the idea was we would warm up up this long hill um, outside her house, and then we would go all the way up into these hills, a sort of 15-mile drag, and then, you know, take it more seriously and see how it was going. So we started off, and after about five minutes, I was in real trouble. She was setting a murderous pace. I was really struggling. Um, And I put myself in front of her to show no weakness. This is something that the coaches tell you. You Don't show any weakness, because why would you? So I put myself in front so that she couldn't see my face. She, She couldn't see how much I was dying on the bike. And it worked. She stayed behind me. And she went quite quiet, which is a good sign because my friend is usually really chatty. After about 15 minutes, I was still ahead, but I was absolutely on my limit. I, I wear a heart rate monitor when I'm cycling and I knew that one more beat per minute would be the end of me. And that was my limit. I was feeling nauseous, my eyes were popping out of my head. This went on and on, and after about half an hour, The good thing was that she was still behind me. We were nearly at the top of the hill, and I thought, this is amazing, I've beaten my friend. She's a world champion. That sort of de facto makes me a world champion. Um, And now I can write my novel. And I desperately wanted to write this book. I'd been so itching to write it. Um, And it was great, and i have done it. At which point, she pulls alongside me, (laughs) fresh as a daisy. I look across at her, she's fine. She looks a bit sort of glowy, as if she's just done some exercise. I really look like I'm going to expire, you know? Sweating, gasping for breath. I was starting to get tunnel vision, by the way, which is nature's way of telling you that you've seen enough. She looks at me with an expression of concern. Okay, she pulls out her mobile phone, which has been in her hand all the way, right? And she holds it up, and I see that the reason she's been so quiet is because she's been finalizing her online grocery delivery for her family. (laughs) (laughs) She has an athletic husband and two very athletic daughters, who get through a lot of carbs and she'd been ordering them up online. We have this company called Tesco Direct, I'm sure you have an equivalent, um, that's probably better, actually, in New England. (laughs) And um, she'd been ordering it up on an app on her phone, they'll deliver. And this is why she'd been so quiet. Uh, And so having experienced, you know, five seconds earlier, this exaltation of realizing what it was like to win, I also, in a miracle of efficiency, um, realized what it was like to be a total loser. (laughs) She looked across at me and she said, that was a really good warm-up. Shall we go now? And I said, yes, you shall go. (laughs) And I shall go too. I went downhill and she went for a four-hour really intensive training ride. I freewheeled back down the hill to the beach and had an ice cream. It was, it was brilliant. I learned. I learned what it felt like to win and to lose. I felt I I learned enough about what the commitment is in the training to write these race scenes, I think, with some authenticity. Um, and I also learned with a feeling of wonder, that there's no way a person like me could become a person like them. I have so much respect for the Olympians. I have so much respect for the Olympics. The act of all of these nations coming together to celebrate something which is beautiful and peaceful. It doesn't happen at all. It's our one global ritual. Every four years we come together to celebrate something that's joyful and energetic where each new generation of people reaffirm the importance of coming together and doing something positive. Um, I wrote about two rivals, called Zoe and Kate. um, And I'd like to introduce you uh, to just one of those characters, um, called Zoe, who's, I think, my favourite character that I've written. Um, Just because of the absolute devastation she leaves behind her. She's a complete mess and I love it a bit, and I would like to introduce you to her through the medium of her coach, who's called Tom. Um, he's in his uh, mid to late 60s. And this uh, scene is set basically right now. Tom Voss still remembered how it had felt for him back in Mexico in 1968 to miss out on Olympic bronze by one-tenth of one second. He could feel the anguish of it, even now, in his chest, raw and unavenged. Forty-four years later, he still noticed the sharp passage of every tenth part of every second. The inflections of time were the teeth of a saw, bisecting him. And this was not how other people experienced time. They noticed its teeth indistinctly, in a blur of motion. And they were amazed to wake up one day and find themselves cut in half by it, like the assistance of a negligent magician. But Tom knew how the cut was made. He took a call from his athlete's agent while he was soaking in the bath, persuading his knees to unlock. So he's been sleeping around again, the agent said. It's all over Facebook. Facebook? Facebook? said Tom. Oh, um, it's a social networking site, Thomas. People use it to exchange information with friends. A friend is someone who... Yeah, yeah, said Tom. I know what Facebook is. Uh, Zoe's got a lot of likes on it, right? Yeah, 90,000, Tom. He held the phone between his ear and his shoulder while he massaged his knees his inflamed ligaments weren't responding to the application of ibuprofen rub. In truth, he knew they would only respond to his applying several decades of top-level coaching insight to his own life. It was maybe time to admit that a 66-year-old man shouldn't be doing such heavy weights in the gym. But hey, there were accountants who messed up their own taxes. There were doctors who smoked Marlborough Reds. Why should he be the first old man to listen to himself? He was a sports coach. He wasn't a pioneer. "'Oh, so anyway,' the agent was saying. "'She sleeps with this guy, and apparently he wakes up "'and realizes who she is, and he goes and plasters it "'all over the Internet, where, right at this moment, "'the salacious details are being read by every single person on Earth "'with the exception of the Chinese, because Facebook is blocked there. "'Oh, and you, because you're a reactionary old man, Thomas, "'with no interest in fun stuff. "'Do you want me to read you the filth he's posted?' Uh, No, said Tom, not really. I'm going to read it to you, she said, as if he'd never spoken. Tom heard her out, but he didn't know what he was supposed to do with the information. I'm Zoe's coach on the track, he said. Who she takes to bed is her own business. "Mm, Yeah, said the agent, but this is just to keep you in the loop and to suggest that... Tom growled. What did a loop have to do with it? Why couldn't people just say I wanted to give you the information? Is everything all right? said the agent. You made a sort of noise. Yeah, said Tom. Actually, I growled at you. (laughs) It's an Australian thing. Oh, and I guess it worked because you stopped talking. (laughs) Look, said the agent. I'm just trying to help, okay? No, said Tom. What you're trying to do is protect your 15%. Yeah, but she's the face of Perrier, Tom. It's worth protecting. Look, said Tom, if Fizzy Water wants a face, that's Fizzy Water's problem. My job is to help Zoe win gold. Yeah, said the agent, but what I'm saying is that we're on the same side here. Surely it can't help her focus to be all over Facebook, like this. I won't disagree, said Tom, but what do you want me to do, shut down Facebook? I mean, I'll check with my broker, but I'm pretty sure I don't own it. Could you just have a talk with Zoe? She respects you. Tom smiled. I've been trying to calm Zoe down since she was 19. If I had my way, I'd keep her asleep whenever she wasn't training or racing. I'd pop one of those little tranquilizer darts into her with a blowpipe like they do with tigers in the wild. But what can I do? I'm a coach. All they give us is a whistle and a stopwatch. The agent said, well, I hope you can do something because this will be all over the papers tomorrow and these things have a habit of spiraling. Tom sighed. I'll pull her in. And I'll see what I can do. That's all I can promise. Oh, thanks, Tom, said the agent. I owe you one. Yeah, well, maybe you can make me the face of something. The agent laughed. Through the phone, it sounded like a goose honking with its head jammed in a half-empty soup can. (laughs) And what would you be the face of? I don't know, said Tom. Tylenol? I use a lot of that. Oh, I think they'd be looking to cast someone younger and pain-free, said the agent. And Tom hung up the call. He thought it over for a minute, and then he texted Zoe to be at his flat in an hour. If he was going to assert some authority over her, it had better be on his patch. I mean, this was rule number one of tiger training. You make sure the beast knows that it's coming into your territory. And Zoe texted back straight away. She said, OK, boss. She was a good girl. She knew what it was about. She'd show up, he'd tell her off, and then he'd make them both a cup of tea and send her on her way. Still, he felt a lurch of worry for Zoe. He would tried so hard to get it right with her. He'd been a terrible dad himself, but Zoe and Kate sometimes felt like his second chance. He cared more than he probably should on his salary, for these two women that he'd trained since they were 19. He let himself daydream about what he'd do to the guy who'd smeared Zoe all over the internet. They were pretty good, these vengeance fantasies. With functioning knees, you could kick all kinds of shit out of a fellow. This was one of the many advantages that thinking held over reality. He cared about Zoe. She was hard to read, and maybe that's why he liked her so much. For all he knew, she really believed in the good-looking losers that she fell for. He often tried to talk about it with her, but she always made a joke of it, as if arriving for her early morning training session with her heart in tiny pieces was the most everyday evil to be endured, like losing an earring or not finding a seat on the bus. She was defensive, and sometimes that came out as sarcasm, and she was right. What would he know about a young woman searching for love? But if Tom had to pin it down, he'd say that she was probably more vulnerable than reckless. The trouble was, he saw stuff in men that Zoe could never see. He knew what men were like. He couldn't blame Zoe for being desperate the odds against her finding love rose every day. She was only getting more notorious, and men were only getting worse. The planet was filling up with these good-looking young worldlings, built entirely of opposites, cancelling themselves out, and, speaking as a bloke, leaving nothing that you'd honestly want to go for a drink with. This new species of guys, they paired city shoes with backwards beards, They played in bands, but they worked in offices. They hated the rich, but they bought lottery tickets. And they laughed at comedies about the shittiness of lives that were based quite pointedly on their own. And worst of all, they were so endlessly gossipy. Every single thing they did, from unboxing a phone through to sleeping with his athlete they had this compulsion to stick it online and see what everyone else thought. Their lives were a howling vacuum that sucked in attention. He didn't see how Zoe could ever find love with this new breed of men with cyclonic souls that sucked like Dysons and never needed their bag changed in order to keep on and on sucking. Tom swore at himself, and put the thought away. The agent was right, he was an old man. Also, he was probably thinking about Zoe too much. He checked his watch. Forty minutes to go till she arrived. His watch was a Casio. It was splash-proof. And it did exactly one thing, which was to tell the time. This was another point of difference between him and Guy's these days. They all wore James Bond watches with separate chronometer dials resistant to a depth of 1000 meters. What did they think was going to happen to them? That they would be thrown clear from the stores where they worked and sink to the bottom of the Mariana Trench from which they would swim clear, only owing to their ability to time events to the split second. (laughs) These guys wouldn't know a fraction of a second if it jumped up and denied them an Olympic medal. They had no concept of what could be won and lost in one. Time was wasted on this new breed of man who could spend a whole night with a woman and then upload it in less than a minute Chris. Hello.
0: It's really great to have you here. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for reading. I really enjoyed that. I hope all of you did as well. Thank you. The press follows these women, Zoe, especially in this case, like she's a Kardashian. <laughs> Is that the price to pay for her hard-driving success? I think
1: these people start racing because they love it. They have a a thrill of winning that they'll experience when they're eight or nine years old. And they follow this process logically. So if you're eight and you win a race um, in the under nines category, well, the next thing to do is to win a race in the under tens category. And it's all very fun. And you're making a lot of friends in the racing. Um, At that age, people don't have bitter grudges and rivalries. They have people that they want to beat. It doesn't get really personal. It doesn't get really psychological. And they'll maybe go to a sports academy together, you know, when they're 12 or 13, if they're really good. And slowly, the pressure has ratcheted up. And suddenly, they realize at the age of 18, 19, 20, that they're in a very big game. And suddenly, the doors have started to close behind them. You know, they've, they've decided often that they'll go training really hard instead of going to university, for example. And they end up with a kind of vertigo in the full glare of the public eye without ever having consciously chosen to do it. Um, so I, I think uh, the question is a really good one. I think it is an inevitable price of success that your every move will be poured over and analysed by people who don't know you at all and claim to understand you, but don't know you. Um, but, I don't, but I think that it isn't a the price they've chosen to pay. Um, and I think especially with sports people who've built up their career organically for a long time, they, they're, they're dancing with the devil, but they didn't choose to do it. And, and that's why I had a lot of sympathy for someone like Zoe, who ends up almost like a rabbit in the headlights with, with everyone looking at her and not knowing how she's got there.
0: And with a penthouse apartment that she has to pay for and this lucrative sponsorship deal. Did you have to ask Perrier, by the way, if you could use their...
1: (laughs) I didn't. I hope they'd be pleased with it.
0: (laughs) But But are you among those who believe that the business of sport has degraded or has been diminished by money and and all of the money that's at stake? We're talking about billions of dollars for Olympic athletes.
1: There's a huge amount of money involved. Um, I think it's a very positive thing. I think uh, professionalism in sport enables people to make it their day job and that means that they can push boundaries and they can go swifter, higher, stronger um, in a way that you can't if you're having to, um, to work to support yourself in other ways at the same time. So I think in terms of the pure beauty of sport and the enjoyment that fans have in watching records get broken year after year, um, I think it's good for sport. I think where it's bad for sport is that when um, the athletes have uh, pressures on them to earn more and more money, there are kind of weird double standards in the sport. And this is where, when I started writing from the points of view of female athletes, I realized that um, there's a lot of um, hypocrisy and double dealing in the world of who gets the big product endorsements. So where I think it pollutes sport is in the, the public perception of athletes, male athletes just have to be terrifically good at their sport and in, in the UK um, soccer is the biggest game in town and we have some terrific soccer players who are nothing much to look at um, but it's necessary only for them to score a lot of goals for them to get the big product endorsements. Female athletes, on the other hand, again and again, you notice that it's not the ones who are best at their sport um, who get the big product endorsements, but the ones who are pretty good at the sport and terrific looking. And that's where it starts to be um, a complicated, sexist, advertising-led business rather than a pure sport. And those those are the angles where I think the money pollutes rather than promotes.
0: And you go back to both of these girls, when they're, they're girls winning their first races as children at eight. Uh, Kate is the one who stops for her teammate and helps her on her bike. Zoe's the one who gets the thrill so quickly and, and she's, she's, she's got ruthlessness in her. She'll make, a, she'll make an opponent crash. She'll use head games on them. She'll be manipulative which is a very different image than that sweet image of your son clinging onto your leg when you were getting into the cab, and yet you love this aggressive character. What, what, what's going on there?
1: I, I like people who are really committed to their thing. I like people who've gone so far down a path that there is no going back. I like, what I loved about Zoe is that she's not only burned her bridges, um, but she's enjoyed watching them burn <laughs> <laughs> she, she's committed so hard to it, and I, I think yeah, she does a lot of stuff that's incredibly ruthless, and there's another way you can look at it, which is just incredibly focused. There's, there's a part of me that really would like to be like Zoe. I mean, Zoe, I always think you know, I, I, it would be amazing if I could be more like her, but I'm more like Kate. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm slow, and I make compromises, and you know, wouldn't it be great to be someone who could just put all of the chips on red and see which way the dice fell. But yeah, she's she's a dark character. And I, I met people like her when I was doing the research. I met athletes who'd raced against people like that and used very colorful language to describe what it was like to race against someone who would, if the umpire of the race wasn't looking, would reach over and grab the back of your jersey and pull you back, even if that meant you were likely to crash. You know, there, there are people who are, who are nasty in sport, which uh,
0: surprised me. And she believed that she had to keep herself desperate and wild-eyed, you know, that, that or, or, or she'd watch someone more frightened than herself Paul ahead of her. Is there something animal here about this, this competition?
1: Animal's a good word for it. It's very physical. And I, I think that um, the idea of being beaten by someone, you know, and when you're beaten by someone, especially on, you know, in a running race or on a bike, your relative velocities are quite close. You <laughs> know, someone overtakes you really quite slowly, you can hear every breath. You can hear the inflection in their breathing. You can smell them you know and there it 's something really animalistic and terrifying about it. Something takes over you know when you are neck and neck with someone, something really antediluvian in here that doesn 't want to lose you know you don 't want to be left behind you don 't want to be the person that gets eaten by the tiger that's chasing you <laughs> you know i don't know where it comes from but it's in here and it's frightening yeah and a- animal is a good word yeah
0: and we maybe should make clear to everybody here these racers are velodrome you know they race in the velodrome so on the wooden tracks that you know slant up in the air and there's a beautiful new velodrome in london for the mm-hmm. london olympics actually yeah. have you been
1: yeah it's gorgeous to
0: look at the um yeah it's a beautiful
1: architectural space uh, Speed is contained, you know, the banking of the curves. Is so they never have to slow down. They go quicker and quicker and quicker. And indeed, if you slow down, you fall off. <laughs> no, it's, it's a fully committed space. It's, it's beautiful to watch.
0: Did you race in one of the, or did you race on the road? You went inside the velodrome? I've
1: raced on, um, I've raced on the road and I've trained in the velodrome. So uh, not London velodrome, because they haven't thrown that one open yet. Mm. But um, Manchester velodrome, where a lot of the action is set. Yeah, you can just show up off the street. Uh, it costs ten pounds. You can you can walk in and, and ride a bike around these, you know, this legendary track. And it's really fun. I'd recommend it if you guys ever get near a velodrome. They all have these things called taster sessions. You know, you don't have to be, um, you know, you don't have to have even done it before. You can get on and enjoy it, and it's hugely exciting. Have you ever seen the the Wall of Death? at a circus where they ride motorbikes around a a wall. It's kind of like that, but slightly safer.
0: They're wearing different outfits. (laughs) Well, that's what they do. They walk in at 19, uh, the three main characters in the book, Jack and Sophie and Zoe, at 19 into this Manchester velodrome where Tom Voss, the coach, first sees them. And it's wonderful, his little tricks that he plays on them to try and figure out who they are very much based on their physicality. Tell us a little bit about those tricks.
1: Yeah, so Tom, uh, when, when his athletes, thanks for asking, I'm pleased that you asked that. When they, um, when they first show up at his velodrome to his first coaching session, they don't know what he looks like. Um, and he's trying to analyze their strengths and weaknesses as people um, without revealing himself. So he pretends to be the receptionist uh, while his athletes turn up for the training session and he just sees how they, how they deal with him. And Zoe, predictably enough, uh, is foul to him uh, and sees him as if he isn't there, gets really frustrated with him, but, um, but is totally socially dominant in the situation, shows only strength. Um, whereas Kate, when she arrives, is meek and timid and wondering if she's even turned up at the right venue. Uh, and And you see the the huge contrast in the personalities of these characters and that's what he's looking for as a coach because he believes well as i believe that there is um a commonality in the way one's character is in everyday life and the way that one will will race and compete in sport you know there's a continuity
0: i wondered about that i I see that you studied experimental psychology when you were at oxford and I wondered if that's part of your framing of the world, if, if you're looking for these sort of personal ticks, those interactions, and, and how that works for you as a novelist.
1: I'm, I'm always observing. Um, I'm, I'm lucky uh, in that I'm sort of small and in, unobtrusive, and I, I can just go into situations and watch. I have a variety of ways for making myself disappear so that I can watch people... Um, without them interacting with me so I can watch people in a natural environment um, that range from sort of techniques of camouflage, I guess you'd call them, all the way through to stuff, you know, you, it's about hiding in plain sight. So I'll do this thing where I'll sit on um, a bus, for example, with my iPod headphones in but and the wire dangling down into <laughs> my pocket, but not actually connected to anything. And I've discovered that if you sit there, nodding like this. (laughs) People just assume that you're in your own world listening to loud music and they'll sit themselves next to you and begin the most intricate and intimate discussions about their lives and you can observe them. There's lots of ways to sort of to treat the whole of life as a kind of laboratory where you can you can watch and I guess I do the same in my family as well and probably in a slightly less creepy way. (laughs) I feel that, you know, my, my writing is it's a hybrid between reportage and fiction. So I go out and find stuff that I think is true about the world and I report back in a way that I think is emotionally true in fiction. So I'm always observing and as a, if I am a reporter, then I'm a reporter who's embedded with a young suburban family <laughs> and, and, and I get to observe them all the time and I think that's why there's always child characters in my books too. And,
0: yeah, you know. child characters and common to Little B and to this book Sophie, the, the daughter um, of Jack and Kate who is actually having a recurrence of leukemia, she imagines herself as a Jedi. And similarly, Charlie in Little B was always wearing the Batman costume. You know, sort of. So what, what are they doing there? What does that imaginary world, that kind of costume allow them?
1: Uh, I think the costume allows them to play with identity. And yeah, Batman was a, a good little character. He was based on my then four-year-old, who was Batman. He, um, he spent a year as, as Batman. He, we had three Batman outfits for him. <laughs> <laughs> one that would be on him, one that was in the washing machine ready to go on him, and one that was drying. And um, yeah, he spent a year fighting crime. <laughs> <laughs> he would ask me sometimes, you know, what are you doing? Are you fighting crime? I'd be like, mm, no, not, not directly today. <laughs> and he'd say, well, why not? Which is a really good question. You know, I mean, in his mind, the logic was really clear. Does crime still exist? Yes. Why aren't you fighting it? I don't know. I like the questions children ask. I think that's why I put them in. They, they ask these questions that are actually very deep, ethical questions, you know, and they're not even disguised. They just are. And um, I, they, they put on little masks. You know, in my family now, I've had uh, a princess, <laughs> um, a Batman, a Spider-Man, and a ninja. <laughs> and, you know, they put on these uh, these masks, these identities, because they're playing with the idea that they could be superheroes. Because they assume that everyone should be, you know, and um, I think that's why they find their way into, into the work. Because they give, they give a context to the ethical questions that are being asked of the adults and they give us a reason to care. I sometimes think that if you have adult characters in a novel, I find it hard to care sometimes if they come to the right choice in their life. But if there's a a child involved um, who has to suffer the consequences of whatever decision they make, I find that as a writer, I I care more about the situation.
0: Well, a number of people are asking about how you develop your literary voice of your characters. Um, And you've written about female protagonists and several of them. Incendiary, this working-class woman. In Little B, this... Ultra successful magazine editor and a Nigerian immigrant, you know, vulnerable, powerless, and in this case, you know, the prototype of two women, you know, the aggressive, um, all go-getting, leaving everything behind, and then the loving mother. And I wonder if these are your costumes. Are you dressing up in these? I mean, how do how, how do you how do you come up with these voices?
1: That's a very good question. Um, I don't literally dress up to write them. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Come on, didn't you put bike shorts on?
1: Yeah, but yeah, I did, I suppose. There's a certain degree of method acting, but I draw, I draw a line. <laughs> no, I, it's, a, it's a very good question. I, I started writing from a female point of view because I never wanted to write about myself. You know, I, I do have an idea in fiction that I need to be going out and finding a story that's much bigger than me um, and reporting back. And so I made a rule for myself that whenever I um, sit down in front of the blank page I'm going to cross a line. I'm going to cross a line of gender um, or of sexuality or of ethnicity or of nationality. I'm going to do something that makes me not be me, that forces me to tell someone else's story. And that's what I started out doing with incendiary in my my first novel, I was was writing as a woman to make sure that I wasn't writing about my own life. But then I discovered that it's a very interesting viewpoint. If you take a female perspective on a lot of the stories in the world, you actually, I think, end up with a more interesting story um, as a novelist. One, because um, dialogue comes more easily. Um, I found through observation, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that women talk about things that are real, using real words in dialogue, whereas men will pretty much talk about sports. You know? I know I'm guilty <laughs> so of this. So you've
0: satisfied both things. Yeah,
1: <laughs> we, have, um, we have a very rich interior life, but, but we, we vocalize it in the most stilted way, I think, sometimes. And, and so to write female dialogue is more exciting uh, as a novelist, and I learned that by taking a female point of view, you discover things that, that you wouldn't if you wrote from a male point of view. For example, we've talked and we've touched on a little about you know, the, the gender imbalance in sport. You know, if I'd come to this through male characters, I wouldn't have worried about things like, for example, uh, media perceptions of beauty versus performance or I wouldn't have got interested in this idea of, actually, look how much more committed female athletes are than male athletes to their sport. Women, at exactly the point at which they're reaching the the summit of their athletic performance in sport, it's exactly the same age where people are saying to them, "Mm, you're going to settle down, have a kid? Well, when a male athlete decides to become a parent, he might miss a week of training, You know, he's not going to miss a single competition. And when a female athlete decides that she's going to become a parent, she might miss three seasons out of a very short career that might be six seasons long, you know, at the top level. And so I discovered that, you know, through writing from a female point of view, I discovered that female athletes are actually more committed. You know, they're putting more on the line. They're more hardcore um, and more interesting, therefore, to write about. And I started, you know, I have to really I have to really work out when is the point for me to stop being in character. Because I started to get quite angry about these things. <laughs> you know. I started to think, you know, I, I, when you see, for example, you know, the Tour de France has just been on, well there's a female version of the Tour de France, it's just that it doesn't get on T V. Mm-hmm. But you just think, well actually, why is that? It's no less interesting. You know, I think the people who compete in it are more committed. The tactics are the same. The structure's the same. It's really, really fantastic. And it doesn't get onto TV at all. Why is that? I started getting really indignant as a woman.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And both of these women are, uh, uh, in the book, um, both Kate and Zoe are gearing up to compete at the 2012 Olympics. It's kind of daring to write a book about the Olympics that is about to begin tomorrow. Um, actually, when we broadcast this, it will be yesterday, or I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. The Olympics will be happening. Yeah. But, you know, this is, this is something that, uh, if you talk to a lot of Londoners, they've already had enough of the Olympics. It's kind of risky to, to set it around an event that's so immediate. Was that... Was that a risk for you?
1: Oh, well, um, no. I tried to, two two responses to that. The first is that I do try to ask these timeless um, ethical questions in my books in a timely fashion. So yes, I'm consciously looking um, two or three years ahead of the point at which I'm writing. And I think, what's going to be on people's minds? Because I can use the intervening three years to work out the backstory to what's going to be on people's minds. So we're going to see a lot of uh, superficial coverage of an event that I can really explore the psychology of. So I can say, um, you know, okay, these people are winning and losing, but I can trace their lives all the way back. And I can say, well, what happened to you when you were seven years old that means you're terrified of losing? And that's, that's an eternally interesting thing. Um, the second way I would answer that question is to say that the Olympics are not a one-off event. Um, the, the Olympics are an ideal uh, with a set of rolling events. Now, so um, if I could interpret the novel a different way, I would say that it's a timeless novel that's going to become particularly relevant every two years, um, forever.
0: Well, you, you had an experience of looking at something that could possibly happen in two or three years that proved strangely, uh, eerily prophetic. The book, Incendiary, was scheduled for release on July 7th of 2005, the very day that a series of coordinated bombings hit London and devastated London. And it was about a possible attack at the, what was a football club, if Mm -hmm. I'm remembering correctly, now this is, this is, what was that experience like for you? I know, you know, the posters were pulled for the book immediately, but that must have been a devastating experience on some level.
1: Yeah, it was a macabre experience, um, a coincidence of timing there. Uh, it wasn't the greatest feat of prognostication. Um, the people knew that a terrorist attack on London would happen nice. at some point. Um, and indeed the reason that I wrote the novel was because I was interested in what the consequences of that would be, you know, whether, um, how we would react to it as a society. And I always try to take um, the lives of individuals, you know, I don't tell big political stories, I, I look at um, people who are caught up in big political situations. and I, So I'm writing about these small lives and I was thinking, well, what would happen? To this woman who lost her husband and her child, what would it be? What would it feel like to be bereaved in a society that was bereaved? And that—that's the unique and horrible thing about terrorism: um, is that the society and the individual at the same time are going through the trauma. Um, there's no normal for them to get back to, um, and so I imagined this scenario, and then it happened on on the publication day. And it was it was a very strange experience and a horrible one. But I think uh, an occasional and inevitable consequence of writing in this space that I write in, which is a contested space that you have to share with reality. You know, I, I've always wanted to be the kind of writer who's operating in that five-year window between where newspapers don't have the space and then uh, five years later, when uh, historians begin their analysis, well, actually, that is the most interesting five-year space to be working in as an artist, because that is the space where public opinion is formed. You, know, you get to events before they've cooled, before they are um, intellectualized, and before a canonical version of history is written. You, that's the space where, as an artist, you can change how history is written. And so, I, I sort of re-engage every time with my right as an artist to write in that space whilst having learned this very bitter lesson that it's a dangerous place to write into and sometimes you do need to step back and say yeah actually on this day reality became more important you know, I, I agreed with the decision in the aftermath of that of the London bombings to withdraw the book from sale because it wasn't, it wasn't about me anymore you know, it was about what had happened to them
0: but it eventually did become a bestseller and, and in many ways coalesced or, or, or summarized in some ways and gave some words and experience to something that just happened to so many people. Is that, was that gratifying for you on some level?
1: I thought it was really interesting. Um, readers began to read the book and began to like it and it took the longest time. It took two years really. And then it started to win awards and they made a movie of it. And people started to read the novel. And you realize that in the end, you know, every, every piece of work finds its level, you know, finds, its, finds its people. Um, it was a strange experience and uh, quite a redemptive one. You know, because I, I wasn't ashamed of the book. <laughs> you know, it's a book about love. It's a book about um, the, the premise of the book is this woman writes a letter to Osama bin Laden. She's told by her grief counsellor to write a letter to the person she thinks is most responsible for the death of her child. This is what grief counsellors tell people to do. But again, who do you write to when it's a terrorist attack? And uh, I'm writing this novel in 2004. The person that she decides to write to is Osama bin Laden. And she says to him, I want you to understand what you've done. I want you to understand what a human boy is from the shape of the hole he leaves behind. I I want you to cut your fingers on its jagged edges. She thinks she can change his heart. And I I wasn't ashamed of having written that book, and and so I did find it um, redemptive that, that people started to come back to it and to think that it had some merit, because it had been for a long time, really pilloried in the press uh, by people who called it um, tasteless and, and, and scandalous and, and were actually asking for it to be burned, you know, uh, w- which I thought was extreme, you know, violent. You know, and so it's good to see it just being treated as just another book again, because it's all it is, it's just another book.
0: Well, there w- in both Little B and that book, there was this backdrop of politics, you know, immigration, um, terrorism, and, and that's not in this book. Was that a conscious choice? You know? um,
1: yeah, I'm not gonna engage hard with politics every single time. Oh. Um,
0: Is that hard for you as a columnist? I mean, you're, you're, you're looking at and observing the world all the time. Yeah, um, it's, all,
1: it's all political in some ways. I mean, I I think that in terms of the gender politics that play out in gold, um, I think there is a component to it that's quite politically engaged. Um, But yeah, I've... It's part of a thing that I've tried to do, um, which is to become the kind of person who looks for stuff to celebrate, as well as stuff to decry. So my first two novels, um, were very vocal about situations that are really awful in our world. Especially Little B is, is about this hidden world that I really wanted to show people. You know, I had discovered this hidden world of refugees and the treatment that they receive in our name that we don't necessarily agree with, and, and I thought that it might be good to shine some light on that, um, and hopefully in a way that gave these people back some humanity. And I think that's a good thing to do sometimes. But I think if you if you do that with every single book, every single project, then you risk being that person who's always moaning, <laughs> you know? was always saying, well, this is broken about our society. And now this is broken. And now this is broken. And actually, there are some things that are great about the way we all live as well. and. I, I've made a rule for myself, at least sometimes, that I should go out and find people whose lives we can celebrate. And I've become more and more impressed with people who, despite the fact that they live in adversity and despite the fact that we all live in a world that's fallen, um, manage to live with a kind of grace. I think that's really beautiful and, and, and is probably you know a way out. Uh, so. I wanted to, to not always be the, the no guy you know? and I think I'll come back to the politics um, quite soon actually <laughs> but um, it's quite nice to find some people that I really wanted to, to celebrate as well. Sorry, it was a long rambling no, answer to a, a really I, good question.
0: I, I think it's a beautiful I, answer. Yeah. I think you're right that you know what we get in this world are examples of people handling disappointment with grace. And that's that's so hopeful. And I just want to say this note because I, I think it's probably something that a lot of people have discovered here. This is from a high school teacher. She's an English teacher who's led many of her students to discover and love literature because of little Bee. So thank you, she says.
1: Oh, thanks. Thanks to her. Thanks for teaching it. No, um, I'm... V- I'm blown away. Thank you.
0: But I do want to mention something about characters and and people dealing with adversity because there's a very moving um, part in your author's note after this book. Um, And apparently you must have done some research about childhood leukemia at the Great Ormond Street Hospital for Sick Children. Can you tell us a little bit about what you witnessed there? Yeah. um,
1: Great Ormond Street is a hospital in central London that's just for children. Uh, They are In the British Health Service but they also do a lot of fundraising. They need 50 million British pounds a year just to keep going. Um, There's some great stories behind how they're funded. J.M. Barry, who wrote Peter Pan, uh, left the rights to Peter Pan in perpetuity to the hospital. Uh, Every time you watch a movie of that, every time you buy one of the books, you know, children get better in (laughs) central London. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I, um, I spent some time there. I was allowed to shadow a doctor who is a Mm paediatric haematologist and he was specializing in children with leukemia and lymphoma. And I was allowed to be in his consulting room while he was offering the diagnosis of these very serious illnesses to the parents. And so uh, you stand there as an observer and you witness the emotional intensity of that room It's extraordinary, it's harrowing even to observe, it's almost unimaginable what the parents go through. I got to follow up on the treatment of these children as they go through various stages of chemotherapy. And uh, I got to watch them recovering. This is what they mostly do, right? 90% of these children who are diagnosed with this particular form of leukemia that I was researching um, will go into remission. So it's a very positive story. Uh, you see some, some not so good outcomes, too. Uh, you see some things that, were, that are really surprising. And this is why you do the research in the real world, because you learn things that you couldn't learn through Googling <laughs> and through, through Wikipedia. The, the, the first thing I witnessed in that hospital was some, there was a kid Uh, I I walked into the main atrium of the hospital, which has corridors coming into it, and this kid was walking down the corridor towards me, and he was about seven years old, and he was in a green hospital gown, really thin, um, dark rings under his eyes, a sort of classic signature of being really ill from the chemotherapy, and his hair was all in clumps. And he was pushing down the the corridor, an intravenous drip stand, do you know what I mean? With, yes, the, with yes, the bag and yes. the, the pole and wheels. And there were tubes coming down from the, the bag into his arm where they were held with tape and needles. And he was pushing this stand down the corridor. And as he, as he came towards me, he was making this noise that sounded like this. Uh, I was like, oh, no. You know, it's heartbreaking. You know, this is like a really, really sick kid moaning and walking down the road. He's coming closer to me and going, I think your heart's gonna break. I realized I was in his way and I kind of stepped back. And as he came past me, he looked up at me And a little smile came across his face, and he made, and he's pushing his drip stand down the corridor, and he he smiles at me, and makes this noise. (laughs) (laughs) He he changed gear, and he, he was driving his drip stand down the corridor.
0: Well, we do get through Sophie. A very rare view of experiencing illness through a child's eyes, yeah. and and she does a lot of managing and concealing her illness from her parents. Mm-hmm. You know, because she doesn't want to destroy their chances of winning. It, it, it's 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 almost like any vulnerability in this circle of champions is too painful to bear. And I wonder, do you think, do you think these competitors, Olympiads, athletes at this level? Are they all a little crazy?
1: They're exceptional. <laughs> I would give them that. Yeah, they're. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, yes. You you contrast it with the world of these children who are sick, and, and that gives you an absolute benchmark of what's important. You know, so so Sophie's struggle with cancer um, is absolutely important. You know, it's life and death. Um, and it's not crazy that she's obsessed with managing her symptoms. Um, I noticed, in, you know, no one's told these children that they're supposed to be miserable all the time. That was the, that was the thing I learned in the hospital. Uh, the, I, I met kids who were incredibly positive, really good at managing the symptoms of the adults around them, really good at managing emotional situations. You know, at eight years old sometimes. When I was eight, I just wanted to know what was for supper. You know, but these kids were managing their parents' anxiety levels. Yeah, they're absolutely sane. The, you know, are the athletes crazy? Well, they're competing for relative glory. they're, They're not engaged in an absolute struggle between life and death. They're engaged in a relative struggle against each other. And there is certainly an extent to which that's a crazy thing to do. You're giving yourself a problem where you didn't have one before. Uh, almost sport by definition is nuts. Uh, it's like that's you know why make, why run all the way around a baseball diamond? <laughs> I mean that's you know you could have just stayed at the beginning. You know <laughs> on on one level the whole thing is cra- is crazy because it's so contrived and the and, and 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 something that's wonderfully crazy about us is that we love them for it. You know we love the craziness and and then occasionally we're surprised that that incredibly arbitrary and crazy thing that we've created throws up some crazy characters and I, I, I just loved going through the history of sporting rivalries I because mean, gold is about a sporting rivalry um, to look at some of them and the more you find out about Olympians the more you realise you just couldn't make it up mm-hmm. uh, people will remember the story of um, Nancy Kerrigan and Tonya Harding mm-hmm. yeah the um uh, Tonya Harding arranged, they're figure skaters. Tonya Harding arranged for her rival's leg. Her kneecap. to kneecap, yeah, to be broken. She, Tonya Harding asked her ex-partner's friend to kneecap Nancy Kerrigan, <laughs> which he attempted to do with a, with a piece of wood, probably a baseball bat or something. <laughs> Smashed her leg as hard as he could. It didn't work, right? It put her out of the World Championships, which Tonya Harding cleaned up on. Um, It didn't put her out of the Olympics. So three months later, uh, Nancy Kerrigan had recovered enough for both women to compete for the United States of America at the Olympics in figure skating. Um, They shared a dressing room. Um, uh, Tonya Harding came eighth. And in an example of divine justice, Nancy Kerrigan won a silver medal, which was great. After that, um, figure skating wouldn't have Tonya Harding anymore, once people had worked out what she'd done. Uh, one of the only sports that would have her was boxing. <laughs> this is a true story. They, um, she became a boxer and according to the people who fought her, um, she, oh yeah, she did really well. She won, you know, kind of half of her fights, which is not too bad. Um, and she won, not because she was technically particularly gifted, but because she was incredibly aggressive. And one like that. And then after a while, even boxing wouldn't have her. (laughs) And so she turned to other sports, and she is still um, the current world land speed record holder um, for a gasoline-powered convertible vehicle. Tonya Harding, ladies and gentlemen, on the Utah Salt Flats flat out right and since then she's been involved in some real you know kardashian like <laughs> intrigue and uh, you know as a novelist if you wrote her down as a character people would say well that's insane you know cleave has lost his mind people like that do not exist and yet i learned that you know that's an extreme example but they are um the rule rather than the exception mm. uh, you it takes a crazy kind of person to push themselves that far to the limit of what it's possible for the human body and the human character to endure, and you get some really amazing people there, good and bad, and wild at heart. You know.
0: Well, we do have to wrap up, but I'm just wondering about your own question: that competition between what comes first, ambition or love? Who, who what's pulling ahead in your life?
1: In my life. Um, I have learned that it's not necessary for all others to fail in order for me to to do my best work. Um, I try to to be calm and not competitive and uh, to try to um, spend time with people who I love. And like everyone else, I find it a daily struggle to work out where to, to draw that line you know? what do we call it we call it work-life balance which is such a, a mundane way of saying it's a huge existential battle between love and ambition <laughs> every day for all of us and uh, I don't have an answer I, I swing it's impossible it's a life of of compromises and and leaps forward and sudden regrets and you know Or otherwise known as family life, I guess.
0: Well, we're so glad you made room for us tonight.
1: Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. May I thank the band? You
0: it? may thank the band, but I was going to thank absolutely everybody who helps put this production together. Writers on a New England stage, executive producer and live stage presentation director is Patricia Lynch. New Hampshire public radio president is Betsy Gardella. Our public radio broadcast producer is word of mouth senior producer Rebecca Lavoy. Associate producer and communications director is Margaret Talcott. Live sound and recording engineer is Mike Marchand. Musical director and band Bob Lord and Dreadnought and photography from clear eye photo David Murray of clear eye photo is with us and you can find his photographs of this on the clear eye website please join me in thanking Mr. Chris Cleave, what a joy, thank you thank you very much thank you thank you